Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 24, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the released today-ish, if you're listening to this the day the podcast releases. Uh, my new book, The God Who Fights For You, was released today. So, um, hey, if you haven't already scrambled and fought your way onto Amazon to get a copy of the book, what are you waiting for? So as I've mentioned before, uh, this book is, I think, will always hold a special place to me. It was the most dangerous book I ever wrote, I think. And I feel like it was a book that I didn't know I could write until I was in the middle of it with Jesus. And I think what came out of it was something really beautiful, especially if you're in a place of great challenge or struggle. This book will meet you in a way that goes to those dark places that few other things can, I think. So it's a very personal book. There is lots of raw stuff in it, and it's also a surprising book. So it's called The God Who Fights For You. It's uh, released today. You can uh, check it out at Amazon. Please do. And obviously, I'm also author of The Jesus-Centered Life, on which this podcast has sort of got its start. And I'm the general editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible, which um, so many of you have, have gotten a copy of The Jesus-Centered Bible, and so many of you have told me, how it has transformed the way you read the Bible. So if you're looking for either a gift to give to somebody that has maybe never gotten into the Bible that much and not read it that much, this is a perfect way to give them an on-ramp into it. So today is our fourth episode in a new series that will extend deep into the summer. It's called Jesus Answers Life's Essential Questions. So yeah, if you're one of those people that have has a copy of the Jesus Center Bible, that probably sounds a little familiar to you because that was one of the special features that I created for that Bible. We uh, basically just started to ponder what are people's deepest questions? What are the deep questions we have as human beings? And I did a bunch of research and tried to kind of sort of categorize all those questions. And I came out of that with nine different categories of questions. These are the, I think the nine essential questions of human beings. And uh, so we're going to move through all of these nine questions through the summer. And we're up to number four. Today's focus is maybe, you know, the main source of all the other questions, the sort of all the other questions are tributaries, and this one's the main river. This is, what is the meaning of life? So today, the Beckinator is joining me for what is the meaning of life, because I think we might need two shovels for this episode, because it's so deep. I wrote that myself. <laughs> it was really funny, wasn't it? <laughs> it was really funny. Yeah. I mean, this is what our listeners just wait for is Rick's made up jokes. That's right. Because they're, <laughs> they're so hilarious. As my family tells me all the time with their blank stares. That's <laughs> mostly what I get at home when I tell a joke is absolute <laughs> blank stares. Unless, unless my daughter Lucy is home from college or home from Camp Barnabas or wherever the heck she is. She does not always give me a blank stare. So this must be my spiritual discipline of telling jokes that nobody gets in life. But anyway, the Becky Nader, there, there she is. She's, she's joining me for the, for the episode today. And the question, 
what is the meaning of life, it, like I said before, is sort of like the trunk of the tree. It's the central question of life, and yet it's not so easy to answer. <laughs> um, it's, it's one of those questions where, yeah, yeah, I, I, that is a real thing for me, but if somebody walked up to you on the street and asked you, can you explain the meaning of life, it would be a struggle. And I found something that the people at Christ Life did. They actually took a microphone into Washington Square, New York City, and just stopped random people, and they asked this very question. What is the meaning of life? So let's, uh, Becky, let's listen to how people responded to this question. It's only about a minute and a half long, and they're basically talking to whoever they can stop, and they're people from all over the world because it's in New York City. So let's listen to how these people on the street respond to this question, what is the meaning of life? Um, well, I can't find one. I don't know. I never thought about. I really don't know. Sometimes I, I think maybe it's to, to, to get it right. I think it's very fluid, but I think the purpose of life basically is to contribute to society in the best way you know how. Raise a family, have grandchildren. To make the planet a better place than it was previously. Connect with something that's bigger than yourself. To glorify God on a daily basis and to essentially work to um, kind of become our best selves that we can and fulfill that potential that God gave us when he created us. For one, to be happy and to and to make happy the people you have around and to tell them how much you love them. Maybe just helping another person. If I can help one other life, then that would fulfill my purpose. My belief is that I was created to worship Allah or that's the Arabic word for God. To live like a good life and just leave some sort of mark on history and just have somebody remember me. Do our best to get to heaven is bring as many people as we can with us. Pursuing what you really want to do. There's not really a specified meaning or a specified purpose. I guess that everyone comes up with that for themselves. And there you have it. Quite the hodgepodge of answers to that question. So Becky Nader, what did you notice? Well, I think that overall, it seems like a lot of people don't really know the answer to that question. And there's a lot of things in there when there was an answer to the question that are hard. I mean, to be happy for your whole life is, I think, really hard. <laughs> to be happy <laughs> every day is hard. So, you know, what's interesting about that is that when, even when you bring that up, these are kind of answers we sort of, I think, take for granted. Like, yeah, to be happy our whole life is, is really the meaning of life. And we don't stop and think what you just said, which is, well, that's not really possible. And it's probably not what we really want. Or we would never watch a sad movie. Well, why yeah. would we watch sad movies if we weren't also yeah. wired to mourn and, and have uh, sadness in our lives? It's not the whole human experience to be one note your whole life. But we don't stop and think about that when we're answering that question. I think that's what's interesting about this question is we give an answer, but they're typically not very well thought out answers. Why do you think that is? Well, because it's, it's such a ethereal thing, I think, to have to do is, you know, one, I, I, I was like, okay, so there's a lot of things we have to do. And 
honestly, like if being happy is like, I, I don't know why that one stuck up, stuck out to me the most, but like if being happy is your main goal, like, well then why do we work? Like, why do we get up and like make money? Um, because money doesn't make people happy <laughs> and, um, money usually makes people unhappy and we spend, you know, 80, 90% of our life working. Um, now, why not just convert your van into a living quarters, you know, and then just drive across the country and live off the land? I mean, who would do that, though? That <laughs> the Beckinator. She exactly did that. Did you feel like you were happier in your van than when, when you were literally living in a van? Were you happier when you didn't have a mortgage or rent to pay or works pressures like that? Were you happier? No, I was really, really stressed out all the time. There were aspects of it that were super freeing that I have tried to keep in my life. Like just the, like if you can only cook food out of a skillet, you really are limited. Like everything had to be cooked in one skillet every single day. And it really actually forces you to do that whole like vegetables and meat diet, really, truly. So there's aspects of it that the simplifying down was really great, but it was dirty all the time. Always dirt, so much dirt, everywhere dirt. And yeah, I would not have expected that to be one of the observations. It is. It is. And that is one of the things that when you live out of a van, like the, the pictures lie, it's always dirty. <laughs> and well, you know, what's interesting about this too, is that we have these sort of dreamlike things in our head that if only I could do that, I would find my meaning. If only I could reconnect to nature, then I'd find the, the meaning in life. If only I would be free from all of these things that are tying me down, I could find the true meaning in my life. We pursue so many false paths that lead to dead ends when we pursue this question about meaning. It, it makes me think about, you and I were talking about this before, Becky Nader, about the cliche of the midlife crisis. And what the midlife crisis is really about is you have gone through school, maybe graduated from high school into college, and your RPM is high. And then you get into your career, and it's even higher. And then you might get married and have kids, and, and then those kids need to go to college themselves later on. And so you got to work even harder. And you're on this like high RPM for like 30 years, and then it slows for a second. And then you start to think, well, what is all that about? What was that all for? And our answer typically is in things that can't possibly carry the weight of the meaning of our life. So if it was all for my kids, and that's the meaning of my life, and what if they didn't turn out so well? Well, where's the meaning of my life then? What if one of them's in prison? What's the meaning of my life then? So all of these pathways that we take or uh, sort of launch when we're in our midlife crisis where we're looking for meaning, they often are either hollow or dead-endy kind of little paths we go on. So I'm wondering, you know, we were joking a little bit about van life there, but, but you've been through two years of what I'd call traumatic transition in your life and where everything was unearthed. Talk about the soil being dug up in your life. It has been for two years, easily, in a kind of an epic way. So what have you learned along the way about your life's meaning as you've been through this extraordinary season of your life? Well, when we were talking about doing this episode, my initial thought, and this is something I've actually thought of multiple times, is 
I was kind of forced into the whole midlife crisis thing because like quitting your job and ending your marriage and like selling all your possessions and living in a van is like totally something people do like voluntarily to like have a midlife crisis. Um, I just was kind of forced to have it. And so, but there's so many things about it now that I look back on and that have really taught me a lot about what my purpose is and what living every single day out in my passion looks like. And one of the biggest ahas I think I've had is that it took an enormous amount of risk to do what I did and to see where I am now and to realize that I never would be in the position that I'm in right now, doing the things that I'm doing every single day, working and building the business that I'm building, having the kinds of friendships and relationships that I have, none of that would have been possible if I hadn't literally been kicked out of the cart and told, you have to go find a different way. And I just, it's taught me a lot about risk. It's taught me a lot about faith. And it's taught me a lot about what opportunity actually looks like to create. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's true about a trauma or a huge season of change in your life is that like the the theme of my book, The God Who Fights For You, is about what it means to be sifted. And sifting, literally in the ancient world, was, as we've talked about in the last episode, is you beat the wheat stalks to separate the kernels from the rest of the stalk. And the process of beating and separating then reveals the only thing that's nourishing about those wheat stalks. And so you could say that a sifting experience like you've had in the extreme, Becky, reveals something. And part of what it reveals is it starts to hint at what is really meaningful in your life. It starts to condense away some stuff because it's upsetting your apple cart. And what's left is really what the meaning of your life is all about. I was thinking about Blaise Pascal, the great apologist and scientist who said this famously, that we all have a God-shaped hole that only God can fill. But man, have we come up with lots of great alternatives to try to fill that God-shaped hole. Those things are always square pegs in a round hole. We are always trying to jam something in our God-shaped hole that just won't fit. And it's in these kinds of upsetting seasons of our life where a lot of stuff that we were worried about or concerned about before gets kind of burned away and we start to see a little bit more clearly. One thing I was thinking about is, well, how does this question, what's the meaning of our life? How do you think, Becky, that it really relates to our everyday life? Is it just sort of a rhetorical question that hovers underneath the foundation of our life, or does it spurt out, show up, surface in our everyday life in some way? What, what do you think? I think that it does show up in our everyday life, but we don't always take the actions that are necessary. Everybody has something burning in their heart that they really want to do and that God's kind of calling them towards. But in order to do that thing, they might have to quit their job or they might have to uh, do something really uncomfortable. We're hosting one of our church's barbecues. My boyfriend and I are hosting it. Have we come up with the term yet? My sweetheart and I are hosting a, a barbecue for our church. The opportunity came to us at church. They put it out there. They said, we're looking for people to host barbecues and invite people into your home. And, you know, Nick and I are just dating and my house doesn't have a backyard or anything. So I didn't at all think like, oh, I'm going to host, I'm going to sign up to do this. And 
but Nick said to me, Becky, I want to host this barbecue. Would you help me host it at my house? And I just have to tell you that that is completely not something I expected Nick to ever do. That is not something that he would be comfortable. He doesn't like to have people over to his house. He does not like to be a party planner and have to deal with people he doesn't know ever. And so I was really surprised that he wanted to do that. And I asked him, I said, what, what kind of prompted that? And he said, well, it scares me a lot, but God just really put it on my heart that that was what I was supposed to do. And I think you know, what, whatever it is, it, it, that may not seem like the biggest thing in the world, but it's a huge deal to him. Um, so your whatever it is that like it is your purpose. I think it's, it, it is kind of like under the surface and it's kind of, it's daring you to risk to do it and put yourself out of your comfort zone. And really every day, I think we're either ignoring it or taking action on it. Or, and you're doing something like what Nick did that, on the surface doesn't seem like something he would do, but he's doing it because it connects to his, the meaning of his life. As you were saying that, I was thinking about a conversation I had the other day with uh, a youth pastor friend of mine who's asked to meet with me once a month. And so for the last eight or nine months, we've been meeting once a month. And the reason he asked to meet with me is he is fascinated, intrigued, drawn to this whole idea of centering your life around Jesus. And in his case, centering his whole ministry around Jesus I wrote a book called Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry that he read, and then he's read my other books, and he got captured by the promise of all this, and he wanted to just talk with me, talk his way through these transitions in his life and in his ministry, and I just met with him this week, and he was like on fire. He was jumping out of his skin. His whole life has been transformed as we have talked, and he has exercised and experimented in new ways of centering everything he's doing on Jesus in his ministry, his whole life has been upended and transformed and his eyes were flashing. He was just full of this excitement. And he said something really profound to me. He said, you know, the deeper I get into this, when the only thing that matters in my life and my ministry is drawing near to Jesus or helping others do that, it simplifies your life so much. He said, I don't have to worry about what I'm supposed to be doing. I know what I'm supposed to be doing. So he talked for a while about how transformative this was for him because it gave him a clear sense of his life's meaning. And I think that's really true. The closer you get to embracing what your life's meaning is all about, it simplifies everything. And it can kind of funnel your energy into these particular areas that make much more impact because your life has been simplified in this way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I was thinking about as we talked the other day about this, uh, Becky, is about the body of Christ, where um, Jesus first introduces this idea, and then Paul goes to town on this idea that we have the presence of Jesus, the Messiah, on earth, walking around on earth for 33 years, and then he's preparing his disciples for quite a long time for what's going to happen when he leaves. And what he says is, when I leave, the Spirit's going to come and make his home in you, and when he makes his home in you— my impact and presence is going to be spread out into all of you. You're going to become my body on earth. You're going to become the hands and feet and eyeballs and hair and everything of me. All of my impact, all of my influence is now going to be channeled through all of you who all together make up my body. This is this extraordinary handoff from the physical presence of Jesus to the spiritual presence of Jesus throughout the world. So when he says, you are the body of Christ, and Paul goes into greater detail about what that means, 
what we find in that then, the, the meaning of our life really then, in light of that is, uh, well, what part of the body am I? And how will I live out whatever it is that is my meaning that I contribute to the whole body of Christ? How will I live that out? If the meaning of life is to find your role or your voice or your presence in the body, then that follows that to live that out fully and completely alive is our meaning in life. To find it and live it is our meaning. So my wife, Bev, has been searching for meaning in her life, her whole life. She's for so long wondered, what is my life for? What is the meaning of what I'm contributing to the world? And she hasn't been able to really feel at peace or find a, a place where she feels comfortable with that. And in the last year or two, well, for four years, we've been leading this small group in our home, and she's been an integral part of that. And what's happened is that through that, she's discovered that pouring herself into the lives of teenagers is part of the meaning of her life. She discovered it accidentally. Along the way, she's also in the last year started reaching out to a Syrian refugee family, and she meets with them every week to come alongside them and help them in practical ways and also help them in spiritual ways. And both of these things have been very, very challenging for her. She sort of discovered something in her soul that resonates with her. And then she just returned from taking 15 of those teenagers from our small group to Camp Barnabas, Missouri, which is a camp for special needs adults and kids. And it's really literally the hardest week-long experience you can have as a teenager and as an adult. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk with Bev, my wife, about what's emerging in her, what's surfacing in her relative to meaning in her life. So Becky, let's listen to what she says, and then I want to see what you pick out in what she says about this. So here we go. So Bev, in the midst of these kind of very challenging experiences that you've had, I know you've started to feel something kind of lit in use, some kind of understanding about what your life is really about. Talk a little bit about what this experience has been like for you and what it looks like to discover that kind of meaning surfacing in your life. Well, I definitely feel very alive. I felt so alive at Barnabas, and I felt so alive just with those kids. It was thrilling and exhilarating. And I feel similarly with the Syrians. Um, and I, what I feel like I'm experiencing is I'm somehow allowing myself to be a conduit for Jesus's love for these people. I feel like Jesus's heart is getting a chance to be expressed and lived out as I have let go of um, the conventional ways of, of thinking that I'm gonna find meaning in my life. What do you mean by uh, that? What are the conventional ways we find meaning in our life? Well, as a Christian woman, I feel like the church tells me to join a women's Bible study or join the women's group at church. And there's always been a disconnect for me. Um, Johnny Baker once said he works with people who have the gift of not fitting in. And when he said that to me, I realized that's how I have felt my whole life. Like I don't fit in. I don't fit the stereotyped roles of what it is to be a Christian woman. And it has been troubling and a struggle my whole life. I haven't seen it as a gift. But as I've decided to let go of trying to fit in, 
to what I feel like I'm supposed to do. And I, as I have simply tried to respond to what makes my heart most alive, I'm finding my, my meaning or my purpose, at least for this season of my life. And Johnny Baker is a well-known influential ministry leader in the UK, and he is looped in and out of our life every few years or so, and he always seems to drop a little bomb every time we're with him that matters in our life going forward. And really, when he says you have the gift of not fitting in, he's really, he's, he's really trying to communicate that your meaning and purpose may not be congruent with the structures and boundaries you've been handed. Or the ways that I have thought in very traditional terms, like I'm supposed to join some already existing ministry organization or outreach and nothing is ever quite fit. And even when I think about it, going and visiting a Syrian refugee family, that doesn't fit in any particular category. And yet, just coming alongside them and loving them and just letting God have my heart burn for a desire for them to, to just succeed in, in this world after having tremendous pain and suffering and just, just being Jesus to them is, has been amazing. And it's been very much a, a, a personal journey. Same with, uh, the small group and going to Barnabas, I thought, man, I've struggled my whole life to go to PTA meetings or volunteer at my kids' schools. None of those things have ever excited me or it's just been this conflict all the time. Yet taking 15 kids on a week-long trip to Barnabas was incredible. I would do it again in a heartbeat because I love those kids. And I realized what's motivating me is the love I have for these different groups of people. And, and that really is just simply, I think, becoming more aware of Jesus's heart and that Jesus is in the nooks and crannies. He's in the margins. He's with the marginalized. He's with the unseen. He's with the suffering. He's, he's in all of those places. And he needs people to be in those places. So let's talk for just a second about um, in each of these environments, the, uh, taking 15 teenagers to what I think is one of the most difficult outreach mission uh, experiences that teenagers can have. It's really extraordinary what's expected of them there and what's expected of the adult leaders who go with them. So that's really hard and scary and even you could call it dangerous. Um, you, you could say that the, your involvement with the Syrian refugees has also tapped into great fear, insecurity, feeling overwhelmed, like how am I going to be able to help them help meet the needs that are so overwhelming in their life? In both cases, you had this experience of, oh, I'm over my head here. I'm out of my element. I'm really afraid right now. How does that factor into you discovering meaning in your life? Well, I've definitely had to step out in faith because like you said, both experiences have been very frightening for me. I mean, you have basically been the teacher in our small group. You have been the primary influencer of these kids. And then suddenly I'm in a van taking them to Barnabas and spending the week with them. That was very scary. And it was scary on multiple levels. Um, I have health issues 
that, you know, if I, that could have easily opted me out of taking that mission trip. And once again, I was needing to pray sometimes every hour of the day just for the strength to be able to keep going. And, and the first morning there, I almost didn't make it. And so, um, but then I saw Jesus come through. I just saw his faithfulness to me. And every day got a little easier physically for me. Um, but it's, it's, it's just challenging on so many levels because I have to take care of myself, which means, again, I'm not going to fit in exactly. I have to go down the path Jesus has given me. And it doesn't always look like others' paths. Okay, Becky Nader, there you have it. So what stuck out to you there when you're talking about the meaning of our life surfacing? What, what did you notice there in that? So I, I wrote down some key words that I heard Bev say. First of all, when she knew that she was doing it, she felt fully alive. She said that she had to allow herself to do it. That was something that she had to allow herself to do it. Why does that stick out to you? Because I think that fear paralyzes us and keeps us away from doing the thing that will make us alive. <laughs> what does allowing mean then to you? I think it means that you allow yourself to do it even though it scares you to death. <laughs> hmm. uh, she said that she had to let go. Um, she had to let go of some things. She said that she had felt the longing for it her whole entire life. She mentioned multiple times that it was something coming from her heart, not her head. She said that she had to step out in faith, that it was frightening. And then the other thing, which I think is such a, a biblical thing, is she said that she had a limitation that normally would have or could have disqualified her from doing it. Yeah. Oh, and why do you say that that's a biblical thing? Why do you make that? Because Jesus and God were always calling people that should be disqualified from doing that act because of some limitation that they have. Like, well, obviously we're not going to ask that guy to do it because he has this limitation. So let's find somebody else more suitable. And he constantly does the opposite. He says, I'm going to call you. And, and we're like, me? I can't do that because obviously you know that I have this huge limitation. And he's saying, yeah, I'm going to call you. That's a fascinating insight too, that I'm just thinking back to when I was uh, playing high school football, I played on a team that had just won the state championship a couple years before. So parents moved into our district so that their sons could play at our football team. Still happens today, by the way. So I had a bunch of these really talented football players on this team and I was not so talented, but I had actually two high school All-American football players on my high school team. And I had a couple more All-State players. And one of those All-State players played fullback and middle linebacker. And he did not have the natural gifts that those two All-American players had. He had to work for everything. Like mm -hmm. he would have said, I have so many quote-unquote natural limitations that he compensated by, by working harder. Those two high school All-Americans, when they went to college, they flamed out. Mm. My friend who was All-State and had no you know, natural abilities, he had to work at everything, went on to play in Division II football and was an all-Division II player in college. But more than that, he had tremendous impact on the people around him and on my life because he did not have everything he needed to do what he needed to do. Hmm. He was in a place of need. 
And I think it's fascinating that you pointed out that that's biblical, that Jesus likes to move through people who don't have everything they need, because they, more than people who do have everything they need, those people are aware of their need to attach to him, to abide in him, to be desperate for him. Bev said she was praying every hour. I can Mm -hmm. tell you from being married to her, she was probably praying every 30 seconds just so that she could make it through this very difficult experience Mm -hmm. and even the fear that's in front of her. Well, Jesus actually likes us to be in this place. And the outcome of it, as you heard her say, is this sense of being fully alive because Mm -hmm. of that experience. All of your senses are heightened and you have a kind of intimacy with Jesus that we were created to have, but we don't usually embrace on our own. It comes in these moments where we're in the midst of great risk and facing into great anxiety or fear. We're driven into him because of it, and we find something of the meaning of life in those places, I think. That's some of what I heard, too, that slowly what's surfacing in her as she's starting to embrace what her life is really all about. That's really the thing that drives our impact in the world, is when you get to that place where you kind of know that you know that you know, this is what I was created to be. This is what meaning I'm bringing to the world because it's been made clear to me what that is. Maybe we can jump now into uh, just a few encounters Jesus had. He found this question to be quite important and important in an everyday way. Let's uh, take a look first at Matthew chapter 13. This is um, the story of the farmers scattering seeds. So this is Matthew 13. This is kind of a strange parable he tells. First, he tells the parable, and his disciples and everyone else are like, oh, what does that mean exactly? So there's a gap after he tells the parable. He does a little bit of teaching and stuff, and then his disciples ask him after the fact, hey, what did that mean? And then he explains it. So just to remind yourself of this parable, he's telling the story of a farmer scattering seed. And when he scatters them, some of the seeds fall on a footpath and the birds eat them. Other seeds fall in this shallow soil that has rock underneath it. And so the seeds sprout up quickly, but because the soil's shallow, they just wilt in the sun um, and they die because their, their roots can't get past the rocks. And then other seeds fall among the thorns and they grow up and get choked out. And the last seeds fall on fertile soil. And when the seeds fall on that soil, he gets this tremendous crop, like 30, 60, 100 times as much as had been planted. So later on, starting in verse 18, this is where Jesus starts to explain this parable. And he says that that first set of seeds that fell on the footpath represent people who hear the message of the kingdom of God, but they don't understand it. And the evil one comes and just snatches it away. And then the seed that falls on the rocky soil, he says, represents those who hear the message and they sort of immediately receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, that joy doesn't last very long and they fall away as quickly as problems come into their life. It just falls away. It burns away. And then the seed that falls among the thorns, he says, represents those who hear the good news of of the Messiah, but that message of that gets crowded out by all the anxieties and worries that are penetrating their life and even the lure of the good life, the lure of wealth. So no fruit is produced. And then he says that finally that seed that falls on good soil represents those who hear and understand God's word. They hear it and they understand it, meaning somehow it gets down past the surface into the soul. 
I think Jesus tells parables, and this one in particular, for two reasons. He's telling them to help us to understand the heart of God, and the second reason is to help us to understand how things work in the kingdom of God. So what can we discern about Jesus' perspective on the meaning of life from this parable, do you think, Becky? What do you see him highlighting about the meaning of life by telling this kind of complicated parable? I think that what he's trying to say is that the meaning of life is deeply rooted within you, but only if you're going to do the work that is necessary. And, and this is where, you know, I think one of the things that we, we work so hard on this podcast for the last, what is, are we on year four? I can't We're on remember. year four. Yeah. Year four. So in the last four. Four, four years is that so much of Christianity has become about behavior modification and so much of Christianity has become this work harder to get better message. And in addition to that, our outside culture is coupling that, that insane mentality of just like so much of the messaging out there is work harder to get better, work harder to get better, work harder to get better. Right. So, so Rick and I have worked so hard over the last four years to provide you with some freedom from that, to just say (laughs) like, no, like, God is the one who does the work. Like I'm in the middle of planting. We have a huge garden that we planted. We have six 10 by 10 planter boxes. We've got corn coming up and beets. And for those of you who have been listening to me for a long time, you know that like, I think I was supposed to be a pioneer woman. Like I love all aspects of pioneer living. And so it's my greatest joy to just kind of like sit in the garden and just spend time with these little tiny plants. But we have a weed problem. And there's these little tiny weeds that are just wanting to choke out my little baby plants. And I'm sitting there and I'm, and they're all, everything's really small. I'm pinching with my little tiny fingers. I can barely see the difference right now between a weed and a plant. They're all very interspersed together. And so I have to be really, really careful as I pull up these weeds that I don't accidentally pull up my little tiny baby spinach that's coming up from the ground. And Every time I do it, I just think about Jesus and I think about that he is the gardener and that he's the one like, no, I'm pulling the weeds. You're not doing anything but growing. That's all I'm asking you to do is come up and keep growing and become a nice little spinach plant. And I just, it, I don't know, every time I do it, I just keep thinking about how he's so careful not to pluck me when he plucks those weeds. So I love that we are really for that message because so much of our culture is not for that message. But I also want to tell you that in the last year, I have seen that I still have to choose to grow. Action has a role and it's not about trying harder to get better, but it is about moving out in faith. And I actually have to do that. I have to say, I'm going to keep getting bigger. I don't need to worry about the weeds that are trying to choke me out. I don't need to worry about the fears and all of the things that are around me because I've got a gardener who's pulling all of those things away. But I do have to choose to keep growing. And we already have some plants that for whatever reason, maybe, I don't know, they're just not growing the way that some of the other ones are and they they may not make it. I don't know why. But I just think that, you have to do some action. There is a role that you play. Yeah. And you know, let's think about in terms of this parable, the action is on, on behalf of the soil. There's four different soils. The seed is the same thing. Yeah. The seed gets planted and it's going to grow if it finds receptive soil. So what Jesus is really saying here is what is our responsibility? What is our role? What is the quote unquote work that we do? The work that we do is to be receptive is to till up the soil of our soul 
so that it is receptive. And one way you till the soil of your soul is to do the very things you've been talking about, Becky. You risk, you lean into your fear. You do what Bev talked about on the little interview I did with her where she followed her passion and her love into things that felt overwhelming to her. But what was drawing her was her passion and her love for the kids and for these Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. She followed her heart and she followed her heart into places that dug up the soil around that heart. By definition, once you're there, you start getting soil that's fertile because it's being dug up and fertilized and prepared for the seed. So our only responsibility in this parable is to be receptive soil. So if you think about what will cause us to be more receptive soil to the seeds Jesus is planting in us, it means that we're more and more open and vulnerable and inviting to that kind of growth. And the only way that happens is when we put ourselves in places that cause us to be inviting. So I think it fits well with what you were talking about before. Cultivating receptivity in our heart, I think, is part of what Jesus is saying here. And when we do that, we find the meaning of life. We find the 30, 60, 100-fold growth happening in our life. And it's obvious what the meaning of our soil is then. We're growing crops for other people to eat, to nurture and feed their hunger. So when we offer our life to Jesus as rich soil to plant in, what we're really doing is pursuing the truth about ourselves and the truth about him. And in that context, our soil becomes receptive. We trust him to guide our path. There's another story in Matthew 25. Let me flip over to that. It's really uh, kind of one of the more um, edgy things that Jesus says, because he's talking about what our responsibility and role is in life. He's trying to put it in a kind of a, a wider context. So it starts in verse 31, chapter 25. Let me just read this little portion to you. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence, and he will separate the people as shepherds separate the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then he goes on to talk about how the sheep, what they have done is give the hungry and the needy and the thirsty help and hospitality. And he says, the goats, you didn't do that. You didn't help the poor and the marginalized and the needy and the thirsty and the hungry. And both sets of people in this story say, hey, I, I never saw you do. I never saw you, Jesus. I never saw you to give you hunger or to give you water or food or to care for your needs. And Jesus says, uh, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So the bone he has to pick with them is that they did not care for the needy, the thirsty, the hungry, the marginalized, the poor, because he says, when you didn't do that, you didn't do it for me. When you did do it, you were doing it for me. So this is not a supposed to kind of love. It, really, Jesus is talking about what Bev was describing. You get swept up into your passion. You're not thinking, I'm supposed to care for Syrian refugees. I'm supposed to take 15 kids to Camp Barnabas. You really get swept up into your love. I've always said to Bev, I think if people love their dog more than they love their spouse, then it says less about the relationship you have with your dog and more about the relationship you have with your spouse. Your love for your spouse needs to get bigger. And really, that's what Jesus is, is inviting us into 
is a bigger love here. I think we're wired to have a great love in our life, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as he's mentioned. So he really doesn't want a lesser love. He wants a great love. So if we tend to think of, Becky, these, these things that Jesus is pointing out as sort of our duty, how do we move from a duty love to sort of an all-in love? And then in the midst of that, how do we discover the meaning of our life? So when you think about in your own life, how you've moved from living the Christian life because that's what you're supposed to do to living it because it's your passion, what have been some of the keys in your life in that movement? Well, the first thing is I moved away from thinking about my faith as something that I had to achieve or that I was going to be graded on or that I had to prove to other people. I moved away from that into like a more friendship-based dependent life where I know with confidence that the creator who made me likes the way that he made me. (laughs) And he's going to work on making that a more perfect iteration, despite like the fact that I live in a world that's covered in sin. He's going to work on that part. He's going to tackle that big giant thing. But then in the midst of it, what he wants me to do is, is he wants me to fertilize my life. So like, you know, Rick, when you're talking about making great soil, well, great soil comes from a lot of key elements Um, But one of them is great fertilizer. It's making sure that you are using compost and that you're mixing in other elements that will enrich the soil. And enriching the soil, there is some elements of reading your Bible, understanding what the Bible says. There's some elements of prayer. There's some elements. There's definitely some pious elements in there, but they're ingredients. They're not the whole entire recipe. They're not, that's not all that there is. I think creating a a life where you're around people who push you and challenge you and inspire you. You know, I, I saw a quote that said, like, if you're the most inspiring person in your group of friends, it's time to move to a new group of friends. Be around people who are pushing and inspiring you. That's part of making good soil in your life and planting yourself in the right place. And really sparking also your passions. So I think part of Bev's story is that as you draw near to Jesus, and that's, you know, directly and then through his body, through other people, like what she mentioned with Johnny Baker saying something to her that kind of blew on the embers of her fire. It it kind of helped her to contextualize how different she felt and gave her a hopeful way forward. Well, that's what happens, Becky, when you do what you just said. When you hang around people that are passionate about Jesus and love his heart, it starts to blow on your embers. And instead of feeling a duty to take care of Syrian refugees or the poor, the marginalized, you can't help yourself. You start to acquire the heart of Jesus for them. And that's what Jesus was really looking for, I think, in telling this parable. He's basically saying, do you have my heart or not? Have you acquired what my heart finds most important, not because you're supposed to, but because you've abided in me enough to capture my my heart. And that's what happens when you hang around people who love Jesus and are inspiring, as you use the word, or even challenging. Things get blown on and the fire can start again. And then I think the message there is then follow the fire where it takes you. Follow it. 
even if your heart has to overrule your head, follow that fire. So the question to wrap up here is, well, what will we put in our God-shaped hole? If we all have one, what are we going to fill it with? And that question is hugely important if we're going to find meaning in life. So you've mentioned a couple of times, Becky, the role of risk in discovering your place in the body and therefore the meaning of life. It's not risk for risk's sake. What kind of risk are you talking about when you say risk is so important? I have this uh, moment in time where I, it was like about a year ago, I was in a situation where I had some, some jobs fall through. I had like $20 in my bank account. I needed to come up with about $1,200 for rent and bills, et cetera. And I had about three days to do it. And I just sat down and I said, I said a prayer and I opened my computer and I made $2,400 in three days. And it was terrifying to be, I mean, you have to understand like that's complete financial insecurity and maybe you live in financial insecurity. If you listen to this or you're very familiar with what that feels like, it's a very debilitating fear. But I think that the choice that we have is we can get up and say, today I'm going to take this opportunity. Today I'm going to take this opportunity and I'm going to trust that God is going to be there for me and I'm just going to walk forward and I'm going to do it. And it's it's a lot easier to say that when you have no plan B, you are very forced to do that, which I recognize that that made my situation very unique, but I have actually not stopped doing what I did that day for the last year. And that has resulted in growing a very strong and prosperous business. And everything I learned that day about how to go out in fear, take the risk and provide for myself is, is the same action that I've been taking over and over and over and over again. And some days it still feels just as scary as that day, even though now I have money in savings and I have plenty of, I don't have to worry about paying my base bills. I don't worry about any of that. But sometimes it feels just as scary because I'm putting myself out there in just the same way as I was that day. I had to say, I know my skills are worth it. I know that I can ask for this. I know that I can do this work. It's still just as scary. And I'm still going after bigger projects and bigger projects with bigger people. But I just keep doing that same thing I did that day. And that's the role is you have to show up. <laughs> you have to show up and say, okay, this is scary. I don't know if I am capable. I don't know if I have all that it takes. What if I find out that I'm going to be a failure here? But you go do it anyways. That's, that's the action. That's the risk. Well, and I, I want to point out here, that moment when you opened up your laptop and you had $20 in your account and you opened up your laptop, there's two ways to open up your laptop. One is I'm going to have to figure this out and I'm going to do it. And one is, Jesus, I need your help. I'm going to open up my laptop now, and you and I together need to figure this out. That is a grand canyon of difference in the way that, that we move forward in life. It's either attaching ourselves to him and inviting him into that place of fear while we are putting ourselves out there. Or we are essentially saying, there is no God. I'm my only resource. I'm going to have to make this work. That is an unfaithful response. The other is a faithful response that still requires our risk and our skin in the game. So it can look similar, 
the two people opening their laptop can look similar, but there's a vast difference between the two. Will you invite Jesus into your risk? That's what makes it a risk that's transformational. That's what clears the fog away to show you meaning in life. And I, I think uh, some people say the meaning of life, you even heard it on that, those street interviews at the very beginning of the podcast, you heard somebody say something like the meaning of life is to worship God with my life. And we hear that and we say, yeah, 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 it's worship in my life. What does that mean though? What does it mean to bring God glory in our life? And I always love that ancient quote from St. Irenaeus, who said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. So to, to wrap up, I think that kind of captures some of what we're talking about here. What makes you feel alive? In the past, we've been told to beware of the things that make us feel alive, to, to tamp those things down, to not follow our desires. And of course, there are some, some desires that aren't given to us by God. But those that clearly connect with our core passions in life, what the glory of God is man fully alive is, is inviting us into is to follow those passions, to find our role in the body of Christ by following our heart. You will most likely find your role in the body of Christ, not by following your head, but by following your heart. And by the way, if you want to explore the idea of following your heart, following your desires, I can't recommend highly enough John Eldridge's book, The Journey of Desire. It is such a fantastic book to help frame this biblically, what it means to follow your desires in life. Any last uh, thoughts here, Becky, before we sign off? No, other than this is so hard, <laughs> right? Like if this was meant to be easy, I, I don't think we would have so many people out there struggling and not feeling like they have any reason to live. And you know, you could say that if we are clay being molded, if the clay said, as I'm being molded, this feels really hard. I was sitting there as a lump of clay, perfectly content until you came along, Jesus, and started to make something of me. It feels hard when we're being molded. But if you trust the heart of the artist, the heart of the sculptor, you know he's making something beautiful. And to do that, he's going to have to mess with your clay. And that's not going to feel so good if you are that clay. But just remember, what he's doing is bringing glory to himself by making a work of art out of you. It's hard to remember that when his hands are on the clay and he's pushing and pulling and maybe even pulling some clay out of that lump to make something beautiful. Well, gang, thanks for listening today. The release of this episode is, I think, the same day that my book, The God Who Fights For You, is released. So don't forget, head on over to Amazon and check this book out. If you've never read Sifted in the past, this is the updated version of that. I've re-edited it and uh, taken out some stuff that I don't think needed to be there before. So head on over to Amazon, get a copy of The God Who Fights For You. And if you know someone who's facing great challenge in life, it's a great gift to give to them. Even if you don't do that, I'd really appreciate it if you would post on your Facebook page or tweet or post something, a picture of the book on Instagram, whatever you can do to let others know that, hey, this book is here now. It's landed. It's on the shore. I'd really appreciate it. So remember, you can find out more about this episode and links to the things we've talked about today by going to paying com. You're going to look for season four, episode 24. It's a podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, and it's from Lifetree. You can subscribe on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll talk again next time. 